Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together and to fellowship with one another, but to take time out of our lives to study your word, understand the spiritual warfare that we're all having to endure and deal with in our lives. And so thank you for this opportunity to learn. Help us, help us to apply these things that we learned. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, where we're off, uh, we left off yesterday talking, uh, not yesterday, last Wednesday, I'm off a little bit. Uh, last Wednesday, talking about the temporary idea of the cosmos and how not to get sucked into that in making a name for yourself. That's the problem of being in this world is you'll be tempted to make a name for yourself, legal, leave a legacy, so to speak. And we talked about how really to leave a spiritual legacy is the, the thing we should be aiming at. Okay, so then we're going to move now. We've, we've dealt with the cosmos now we move into Satanology about Satan's work in the Old Testament. We'll move into Satan's work with the Messiah. We'll move into Satan's work with the uh, Gentile nations, and that will bring us into some prophecy as well. And then we'll talk about Satan's work in attacking you and tempting you. Now, I will say this. Um, why is this important to learn? Because what I am noticing as a pastor when people talk to me and they're having issues, they're having more and more supernatural encounters as Christians. I expect the world to have supernatural encounters and to, for them to dismiss it, but I am hearing on a routine basis of believers telling me experiences that they have, and, and it's not, this is not normal, and it's not because of what, you know, you know, something that's odd happening, it's they're getting a lot of pushback and opposition. And we're not talking about like, well, I think because I got a flat tire that Satan opposed me in getting my flat tire. That's not what I'm talking about, man. I'm talking real full-blown demonic attacks. And it's becoming commonplace. I, I, and so I get it. We're in the last days. A lot of things are ramping up. A lot of things are hitting the world scene. And it seems like the demonic world is in a fever pitch and has an urgency about trying to do what they need to do as far as deception about what's coming, trying to silence the arguments, trying to silence the truth, to lull people to sleep into what's about to happen in the near future. So um, all of this is, we need to know, we have to have it on our belt because you won't know how to deal with it as it comes. Um, I, I would just say this, I probably deal somewhere in the neighborhood about one a week. Now, 20 years ago when I started ministry, one a year. Okay, that's within 20 years. So I, as a pastor, I'm telling you, it's ramped up. Something's happening. I think I know what's happening, and you know what's happening, but I can compare and I've never seen it like this. I've never seen it like this. So let's first look at Satan's work in the Old Testament. Well, we know he's the first sinner, and he's the originator of sin. That's where it all begins. And it started because he fell in love with himself in his pride, and then his pride made him go crazy in his mind, and then he thought he could take God's throne and, and take over the whole thing. We studied that. Then, as you know, we've studied the uh, that he caused the fall of man in the temptation. He was a murderer in the beginning, and Jesus said he was. 
Uh, he then moves, and you see him in the Old Testament, an accuser of Job's motivations to love God. When you look at the book of Job, it is about Job, no doubt about it, but Job is actually a typology of humanity and believers in that, that sense. So when you look at Job's reaction, the, the drama that's playing out with Job is actually our drama as humans. Will these humans serve God even if there's no benefits? Will they truly love him for the master instead of what's on the master's table. That's the whole story of Job, and it's the human drama, and it's the drama that will happen in your own life. Your own life will be, will you serve God when it's bad versus will you serve God only when it's good? And that will be the test in your own life. And the, obviously, the test that you, that's going to come your way is, can you do that? If you can do that, you will be rewarded. A lot of Christians can't. They can only be good Christians when things are going right in their life. And when things go haywire, that starts falling. And so how do you, how do you uh, fight against that? Well, it's called maturity. You have to be mature. Your capacity to handle your environments will be based on your spiritual maturity. So you're going to be put in different environments difficult environments, hard environments, pressure environments, and you have to have the character that's built in you spiritually in order to deal with those environments. And if your character's not there, you're not going to handle it. You'll handle, you'll, you won't suffer well, as they say in the Bible. You want to suffer, you want to suffer well, not suffer bad. And what do you mean? What's the difference between suffering well and suffering bad? Well, Regardless, you're going to be put into a situation, and if you suffer bad, it means you're going to get twisted off at God, you're going to get a break away from fellowship, you're going to break away from the church, you'll kind of do your own thing, then isolate, and do the woe is me thing, okay? That's called not suffering well. doesn't mean you're not a Christian, it just means you're not suffering well. And you won't learn any lessons by that, by the way. If you suffer well, you endure and persevere through the hardness, and actually because of that, you learn things about yourself, and then that allows you to grow and and get those things in you fixed so that you can develop the character to take on the environment that you're in. And once your, your character develops in that environment, then it'll be time to move on to a new lesson. So that's what God's doing. He moves you from environment to environment to new vistas to new territories when you're ready to move on. But you have to master the environment that you're currently in. Okay? If you want to move on in your spiritual growth and you refuse and you protest the environment that you're in, you won't move any further. That's very important to understand. I don't, and you don't want to be stuck somewhere because we refuse to cooperate. You can go into protest mode because you have free will. I can go into protest mode and say, I don't like this. I'm not putting up with this. And do whatever you want to do. Run, hide, not function. Go, go into a dark room and put the covers over your head. Whatever. If you decide to stay there, that's where, where you will stay spiritually. 
So you, what you, you have to do as a believer is adapt to the new environment and move with it. And yes, when you get in there, it's a little scary because you do not possess the character ne- necessary to endure that environment. So what does it do? It puts the impetus on you to say, then grow to it. Grow to that environment. And so that's what God wants you to do. So wherever you're at right now, are you growing to meet the demands of this environment? Okay? Because if you can, then he can put you in more situations, and then you will grow to that environment, then you'll grow, and then you'll grow. And before you know it, you can handle a lot more than the average person because you know the tools available to you. You actually know who you are in Christ. You know the truth. And because of that, it sets you free in those environments. You're not trapped by the environment. So again, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about where you're at and whether or not you're suffering well or suffering bad. Okay, that's the whole point of Job, is whether or not Job is going to suffer well. Now, he gets a little uh, goofy there for a while, but at the end, the Lord rebukes him, gets him straightened out, and then he figures it out. And then the Lord restores everything to him. But the idea is, Job will never curse God like his wife wants him to. And that's the test. What do you mean cursing God? Is you're going to blaspheme? No, she just wants him basically to turn his back on God and just walk away. Just, look, he's not in it for you. Look at all the tough times you're having. So just, you know, drop out of your faith in him, so to speak. You know, just, you know, why go to church anymore, man? It's not doing anything for you. Your life is miserable. It's not really helping you, right? That's the mentality. So people are dropping out. So think about this. What is the percentage? I think it was... uh, 25, I think 20 to 25% of people before the shutdown have now dropped out of church completely. Okay? That's a pretty big stat. They just they just don't go anymore. That that the shutdown was such a hard deal for them to accept that it basically shipwrecked their faith and now they don't even come back. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well that's that's kind of immature. Why would someone think like that? You know, that, that sounds like, you know, cotton candy Christian. You're right. It is a, if the shutdown kept you from like ever going back to church again because you're just so messed up, yeah, you're talking about a very shallow believer. Very shallow, right? You should be able to take more, you would think, right? But then, then we go up from there, okay? And you go up from there to where it's, uh, you know, compliance with the medical tyranny, and then you're going to go up from here and you're going to meet compliance with the digital currency, compliance with businesses that have to meet ESG requirements for banking and for business and things of that nature. That's another environment you will have to endure. Then you're going to have to endure the school environment, whether it's public or private. They're both in the dumps. There's a lot of other good private schools, but a lot of them a lot of them are going along with this curriculum. You got to really check what kind of curriculum's going on out there, and you got to check what kind of leadership you have in those schools. I mean, it's it's not a there's not a lot of safe spaces anymore. And so, what you have to get prepared for is my character needs to get up to the level of where that environment is, and that's the only way you're going to cope. It's the only way you're going to survive. Otherwise. You'll go right into fear, 
and do something stupid. And a lot of people have done that and they regret it because now they're paying for it for making bad decisions. Okay, so that's what the idea of, of Job is about. Then you have the afflictor of Job. Now, one of the things you learn about Job is that Satan and demons and fallen angels can afflict you um, physically. They did the Job. Job was a believer, so they, afflict, they afflicted a, belie- a believer. It was with the condition of permission, obviously, that the Lord allowed it, right? So the Lord will allow it, but will the Lord allow it for you? Yes, he will. Sometimes we get sick, and it's not because we caught a virus. It's because something was inflicted on us. Now, this can happen in discipline, and I'm not saying Job was being disciplined, but one of the issues of church, not church discipline, sorry, the Lord's discipline is that he, he will allow a physical affliction to come upon you, to wake you up, and, or to just say, hey, look, no more. You're, this is your spanking. Very possible. And then if that affliction is allowed, it's either going to be through demonic, it could be, you know, uh, fallen angel, whatever. But that's, we, we would probably not be aware of that. We would just know we're sick. But if you knew you were sick because of a sin, then that's how you correlate it, okay? That God's disciplining you, and he might allow a demonic or a fallen angel to inflict that on you. Or a good angel. A good angel can inflict the same thing. It's not a problem if the Lord allows it. And again, this is where you have to be really careful to like not blame your colds on, oh, uh, you know, God's disciplined to me. No, it would be something like, I'm in open sin and rebellion. And then all of a sudden, as a believer, you're doing this, and all of a sudden you come down sick. You have cancer or something like that, or you have something's wrong with your heart or something like that. I don't know. You have to have a one-to-one correspondence with you're in sin, and now you're getting sick. That's what the, the, the warning of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is about. Remember he said, some of you have got sick, and some of you have died. Remember that, for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? That's real deal stuff. So in this case with Job, he, he allows Satan to afflict them. Okay. Now, for some reason, the angels and fallen angels know our chemistry, our biology, how we're made. Okay. They actually saw us made. Uh, when man was created on the sixth day. They have amazing powers over the human body. They can heal and they can afflict. And like I've mentioned before, um, there's, there's stories of these people in the occult, like this woman in Mexico who was a surgeon who could actually do surgeon, surgery on people, which was absolutely incurable, would be able to reach into the person and make very little incisions and they would cure people of tumors and cancers and all that and it was all done because she was channeling a demon and she could use it made story after story about her amazing abilities to heal obviously it's from the occult but the same is true not only can they heal for deception they can inflict for deception so like i said before with the woman I had dealt with, which was with Anton LaVey, she said she had the gift of healing. 
And uh, one of the things she would tell me is that she would uh, go around the world with Anton LaVey, the Church of Satan, and would actually have healings to people. But then she decided to tell me her secret. And she said, the secret was this. She goes, I didn't really heal anybody. What was happening is the demon or the fallen angel was afflicting the person physically. And then I would come in there and act like I'm doing, you know, some magic spell or something like that. But really what happened was the demon and the angel lifted the affliction off the person. So I knew what was happening, but the people didn't know what was happening. So they saw us as miracle workers. That's how it works in the demonic realm. It's, it's, uh, it's, they're really not healing. They're lifting their afflictions off the person, which is totally different. That's a counterfeit miracle, right? You put someone on somebody and you lift it, that's a counterfeit miracle versus Jesus going in there and completely healing someone of leprosy or whatever and taking the disease away. They heal by counterfeit. So this can happen. This can happen. Um, I've dealt with people that when they're demon-possessed, I have talked to them, and then when they go into that mode and the demon takes over, they have incredible pain, and like their head's going to pop, like their head's going to explode. The demon can do physical things to put them down, uh, physically, stuff like that. So it's real deal stuff. And so when you see what happened to Job, don't think this is what happened thousands of years ago and doesn't happen today. It sure enough happens today and happens quite frequently, mainly to uh, unbelievers, but it can happen to believers as well, based on if the person's in sin. Now, now, like I've mentioned before, if the person gets church disciplined, now there's one thing, there's two types of discipline, discipline of God, and then there's the church discipline. Now, here's what happens in church discipline. I think I've mentioned this before. Once the person goes to uh, DEFCON 3 in Matthew 13, okay? You go level 1, level 2, level 3, which when it's brought before the church, and then the church excommunicates the person out of the church because they refuse to repent. At that point, the, the person loses the protection of the church's authority, okay? So if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the immoral brother is kicked out of the church, expelled out from under the protection And once he's out of that church's protection, then he can be physically or she can be physically attacked by Satan. And that's what the point of 1 Corinthians 5 is. He says, kick the immoral brother out so that Satan can destroy his body and thus his soul will be saved. And the idea is, hopefully, when Satan starts pounding his body and trying to destroy it, then maybe he'll come to his senses and get... Not save in in a salvation sense, but save from physically dying if he repents and comes back under the fold of the church and the umbrella of the authority of the church. So it's a big deal. So here's the thing. When you read 1 John and he says there's a sin unto death, what sin is he talking about? Because people say that, well, it's, it's this, it's that. It's, what does he mean? He goes, I do not ask you to pray for the sin unto death, or someone that's caught in the sin unto death. What is the sin unto death? Has to do with church discipline. The sin unto death 
is when the person ex is excommunicated out of the church and Satan is allowed to destroy their body. That's the sin unto death. And he says, I don't ask you to pray about that one. Why? Because it's necessary to remove them from fellowship so they can get woken up. And, and therefore, what you realize is you have this promise that Satan cannot attack you and or kill you, according to Hebrews 2, unless you're church disciplined and expelled out of a church. Now, the person might think, well, I'll just go down the neighborhood church. You might do that, but if a church has local authority over you and you have been expelled, you can run off to whatever church you want, but at the end, Satan will follow you and destroy you at some point in time if you don't repent. Now, the old boy in 1 Corinthians repented, didn't he? And he came back and he got restored and everything was fine. But that's what Paul's wording means, um, and it's a pretty serious deal, and a lot of people don't understand it because it's not taught. But that's what can happen. That's the only time Satan can mess with a, with a believer in physically harming them is when they're excommunicated out of a church. Okay, then we see the disputer over Moses' body. Now, we have to explain this to understand why does Satan dispute with Michael the archangel over Moses' body. It's kind of a, a weird thing uh, that you see in uh, Jude, and it's, it's a thing that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would Satan want Moses' body? Now, some interpreters will say, well, it's because you know the, Jew, the Jews... Uh, because they hyperventilated Moses so much that they would have worshipped him like an idol. That's my. That's true. I mean, the worship of the golden calf, that may be true. I don't know if that's really the right interpretation. It probably it might be part of the interpretation, but I don't think that's a thrust of the main interpretation. So the dispute over Moses' body. So remember, Moses was led up to Mount Nebo, and there the Lord uh, uh, took his life and was going to bury him, Right? But then there's where the dispute happens. And then Michael gets involved in this. And the Michael has to come in with other authority saying the Lord rebuke you because Michael doesn't have the authority to rebuke Satan because uh, Satan is higher than Michael. Uh, Satan is a cherubim, which makes him way higher than Michael. Michael is an angel. He's an archangel, whereas Satan is the arch cherub. So there's two levels before you get to Michael. So Michael's way down here. So Michael doesn't have the authority to, to tell Satan to stand down. The only way Michael can tell Satan to stand down is by invoking the Lord's authority, the Lord rebuke you. So basically he was saying the Lord tells you to stand down, not me, the Lord does. And at that point, Satan has to back off from the body. Okay, so what's the big deal? Well, it has to do with understanding Satan's accusations against Moses and against you and against Israel. This is where when you see number seven, the accuser of Israel, he's also the accuser of the brethren. He's the accuser of even uh, unbelievers. In Psalm 109.6, in your Bibles, uh, it, it's translated accuser, but it actually is the proper name. I shouldn't say the functioning name of Satan. It says Satan in, in, your, in your Hebrew uh, Masoretic text. And so he even is present at the judgment of unbelievers. Okay, let's go back to Moses. What, are they, what is the dispute over? 
why does Satan not want Moses' body buried at that location or in the vicinity? Well, it has to do with the location and understanding of the location. You are at Mount Nebo, okay? So right behind Mount Nebo is we uh, um, is a, a traveling path on the other side of the Jordan that you could travel through. And it is um, called, if I can remember right, the Valley of um, the Travelers, okay? So... It's on the eastern side of Jordan. Mount Nebo looks down from that side, but behind it is the Valley of the Travelers. And the Valley of the Travelers is not just simply a valley called that. It's, it's called that for a specific reason. In the Middle East or in Israel, that area was the entrance into Sheol, that Valley of the Travelers. That is where, once you died, you would go into Sheol through an area in the Valley of the Travelers. Okay, so um, it had a lot of evil connotations, especially up in the north near Bashan. There was a lot of demonic activity. It included Mount Hermon, uh, where apparently the Watcher Angels decided to mate with human women in Genesis 6 and create hybrids. So this valley is a very evil valley. Well, anyway... Um, Sheol, as you know, is, is the underworld in the earth, and Sheol has four compartments. You have the Abraham's bosom aspect or paradise. Then you have the pit where unsaved humans go. Then you have the bottomless pit where fallen angels or demons can be temporarily confined. And then you have Tartarus where fallen angels in Genesis 6 are permanently confined until the great white throne judgment. So you have four compartments in there. So before the cross... People went to, believers went to Abraham's bosom or that compartment of Sheol. You always went down because the only time people went to heaven is after the cross at the ascension. And now when a believer dies, they go to heaven. But before the cross, they went to paradise. Okay. That being established, Moses has now died and he's going to enter into Sheol, into the paradise part of Abraham's bosom. But apparently, Satan doesn't want him to go there, and Satan is protesting Moses' uh, placement in paradise. Okay, And I think we've covered this, but you, just if you remember, what is Satan... Think about what, what Satan would accuse Moses of to God about not being allowed into paradise. Hmm? He murdered somebody. Okay? So he murdered a guy early in his life. Any other things that Moses did? He hit the rock twice. It's a big, big problem because the rock is Christ. Christ will be struck once, not twice. He messed up the whole typology in striking the rock twice. He was only supposed to, on the second time, he's only supposed to speak to the rock. Remember? Speak to it. Because after you hit the rock once, all you have to do is ask. It's a picture of Christ. Once he's struck once, that's it. And all you have to do is ask for salvation. And you'll get the living water. Okay, so Moses messes, messes that up. So the fight 
is where Moses is going to be buried, in the vicinity of Mount Nebo, in the valley of the travelers, which is the entrance to Sheol in the ancient world. And therefore, it appears that Satan was accusing Moses that he should not be allowed into paradise based on what Moses did. Okay? So he was not going to allow Moses' body to be buried. He wanted to take it and put it somewhere else. But then the Lord speaks through Michael and says, no, you're, he's going to be buried there, and you're going to back off. So if you read between the lines, what's going on there? Yahweh is coming in and saying, no, Moses is allowed to go into paradise because of what? Why is Moses allowed into paradise? Because he's saved. Remember, salvation is not of works. Moses believed God. That's the reason Moses goes to paradise. He doesn't go to paradise or is kept out of paradise by his works. You don't go into the paradise with your works, and you don't, you don't, you're not kept out because of your works. You're only allowed into paradise because of your faith. Moses had faith. Now, here's the thing. Satan seems to not get this. He keeps opposing. He will do the same thing to Israel. He will do the same thing to you in another way. So, so that's what he's opposing. So he doesn't want Moses buried at the mouth, at the entrance of Sheol. Because it's sending a bad message. His message is, you don't get to go in there because you weren't perfect. And God's message is, he doesn't have to be perfect because my son will be perfect later on. That's why he's going there, because one day my son will make the sacrifice for Moses. So I'm going to put him in a temporary place until the atonement is made by my son. Does Satan know all of this? Of course he does, but he still opposes it. He's, he's not thinking straight, obviously. Because, he, you know, why would you even debate with God about Moses' works? He's not thinking straight. And, and maybe, dare I say, he doesn't understand a lot of this concept of, of grace through faith. I mean, even the, the, it even says in the Scriptures that the angels inquire and look down to understand this grace. So if it's hard for a good angel to start figuring this out, how much worse would it be if your mind is messed up and you're in rebellion to God to understand how faith or grace works. It, it makes sense, right? If the angels have a hard time understanding it, I would imagine they would have under, the enemies of God would have a hard time understanding it. Okay, so that's the story of, jo, uh, uh, of Moses and, and, and the dispute over his body. Then let's move then to, he does the same to Israel, but then let's look at how he accuses you and I. We've covered this a little bit, but the accusation against us would be what? I mean, he knows we're saved. We have a, the child of God uh, designation and position. So what he's going to accuse you of? He will accuse you of unconfessed sin and unrepentance. That's what he'll accuse you of. That's why in 1 John 1, 9, you are to keep short accounts with the Lord to make sure you still walk in fellowship with him. We all screw up. There's no doubt about that. But you must make sure you are getting back in line. You're confessing that. 
you're tr you're doing your best to get into the right direction and get moving on that. And we're not saying you're going to conquer a sin overnight, but if you do fall, confess it and get back on the path. It's important that you're on the right path in the right direction. If you're off the path and not heading in the right direction, that makes you an open target for accusation, okay? So if he accuses you, hey, so Joe Blow here is unrepentant, and he's unconfessed, and he does this day and night to you, by the way, in front of God. Um, this guy's not doing what he needs to do. I get reports from my demons watching him that he's not doing, he's doing this, X, Y, and Z. What are you going to do about it? Okay? That's what he's saying to God. And then God is going to look at the situation, where you're at, are you repentant, are you confessing? And then at that point, whether or not God will discipline you for that. That's how the game's played. And God will want to discipline us because he wants us to get back in line. But God forbid that we give Satan any fodder to bring an accusation against us to the Father. I don't think anyone would want that. But that's what happens with unconfessed, unrepentant sin. And so Satan knows he can't change your position as a child of God, but he certainly could ruin your life. And he certainly wants you dead. That's another thing you have to understand. What is he called? A murderer. So what, who does he want to murder? You. Every human on this planet, he would love to murder. So you have to understand you're playing with a foe that actually wants you dead. He wants you dead. And he will do everything he can within his limits to ensure that that will happen. Anything he can do. And if we give him a foothold, he will work the death principle in us to create death in our lives. Now, it could be death of relationships. It could be death of you know, employment, it could be death physically, it could be all kinds of stuff, but he will introduce the death principle in you and, and, and hang on that sin that you're doing and then capitalize on it. And before you know it, you've been, you move from influence to then suppression, and then if you continue to allow it, you'll move into oppression. Suppression is this, that once you accept his influence in your life because you're unrepentant and unconfessed, then he gives him the ability to now suppress you down in that sin. To whereas you could free yourself in the early days, now you can't. It'll be very difficult for you to get out of that because not only are you fighting your own will and your own sin nature, you're actually fighting against an entity that's suppressing you in the sin. And there, therein lies why, if you get suppressed, why you need help from the outside. You need other believers helping you, counsel you, praying for you, because you will lose the power to get out. They will overpower you. That's suppression. If you continue in suppression, then it moves to oppression. And then in oppression, you start having weird things happen to you. And that's the nature of it. You have paranormal things starting to happen to you. I'm not making it up. People tell me that all the time. They have paranormal stuff happening to them. Particularly, you'll start in your dreams. You'll be attacked in your dreams. You'll have weird dreams that are not normal. And that's how they start working on you. They harass you in the dream. They will strip you down naked. They will tie you up and mock you in the dreams. 
They will sexualize you in the dreams. They will sodomize you in the dreams. That's how real I'm talking about. That's the kind of dreams people start having. No joke. They will be on the run trying to murder them in the dream. And sometimes they will appear as a beautiful woman or a, a, a handsome man and seduce you in the dream to have sex with them. And then while you're having sex with them, they'll turn into a monster. That's how you get harassed. It'll always be sexual. It'll always be murderous. When you're having that, you're getting harassed. Real deal stuff, not making it up. People tell me that all the time. It's the norm when that's happening. Okay. So why is there a dispute over Moses' okay, body? over Moses, when you had others like Abraham. Sure. What, what was special about Moses? I know Moses was special. You know, but for Satan, what was so special What's, about Moses? So, so, because the other ones would go. There's to something very different well. about Moses that even Abraham doesn't have. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying? There's something that Moses has that no other person had in the Old Testament. You know, you know what that one thing was? Abraham didn't even have this. He saw God face to face. That's why he's so significant. That's why Satan targets him. He's the only one in the Old Testament that saw God face to face. So it, it really, that puts Moses in a whole different class at that point than everyone else. Abraham didn't even see God face to face. Isaac and Jacob never did. No, Job didn't even. So Moses is extra special because of that. So that was, that's why. Good question. Okay, so then he accuses Israel, accuses us, and then he'll even stand at present at the judgment of an unbeliever in Psalm 109.6. He stands there and watches them be judged. Now, here's the thing about an unbeliever. An unbeliever is not protected by spiritual authority. An unbeliever is vulnerable to attacks. And so at that point, Satan can attack an unbeliever and do what he wills with them, again, within limits, uh, whatever God allows, obviously. But this is why he does target unbelievers. He wants to destroy them, wants to use them for a while, and then eventually kill them off, whether it's through suicide or drugs or whatever he'll do. He'll kill them off once he's done with them. But he will stand in judgment to unbelievers because, look, he hates humans, okay? He hates, he hates believing humans, but he also hates all humans. He would prefer that no one is alive on this planet. You know Why? Is it just because he hates humans? Why do you think he hates humans so bad? Because God loves us, but there's other positions that we occupy that he wanted and he doesn't get. Remember the five I wills? I will ascend on high. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will be over the angels. All the five I wills? Well, in, in a different sense, we will never obviously sit on God's throne, but we sit on Jesus' throne. We, we, will, we will sit above angels. Angels will be put under us once we're glorified. Everything Satan wanted, we get in a different way through the Messiah. Everything he wanted, we get through him. He goes, sit on my throne as I sit on my father's throne. So Jesus is going to allow us to sit on his throne. 
That's what Satan wanted. That's the highest throne. Being above the angels? Yeah, one day when you're glorified, you will be above angels. They will serve you, and you will be ahead of them. Right now, we're made lower than the angels, but then we're made above the angels. What did he want? He wanted to be above all the angels, didn't he? He wanted to be the leader. We get those. That's another thing. The other thing is, Messiah restores our authority back to planet Earth. That's what uh, Revelation 5 is all about. Why is he able to, why is the only the one, the lamb slain, only the one to get the title deed of the earth back from God? Because he's number one, 100% human. He is the God man, but that human is the second Adam. And that second Adam, through his sacrifice, regained our authority, which Hebrews says is not yet in effect, but will be, we see Messiah, it says will be under the Messiah and given to that authority. And he promises those who are rewarded well will be given authority, authority to rule and reign with him, to be a co-regent with him over the planet. So I think it says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit what? The earth. Real deal. You will. You'll, own, you'll be part of that co-regency with him. And so... Adam was the first king of planet Earth. He was to have authority over the entire planet. And he lost it because it got usurped. Satan became the god of this world. But at the cross, Satan was disarmed by the Messiah. And Messiah then rightfully, through his engagement in that, takes back the authority for man to be rulers over this planet. This planet is a big deal for Satan. He wants to rule it. He wants to sit in Jerusalem on David's throne. He wants that. But that's only reserved for the Son of God. And remember, if you recall, before this planet was a gem planet. And guess who had authority over that one? Therefore, what was taken away in judgment has now been given to man the Tohu and Bohu is a recreation of the original planet in Genesis between Genesis 1 and 2, and he's even more livid that we now have authority over something he used to have authority over. Furthermore, he doesn't like also the fact that angels were created to minister to us. We don't minister to angels, do you? They were created for not only worshiping God, but also ministering to human beings. He doesn't like that. And neither did a third of them. They didn't want to minister to us. Not only did they not want to follow God, but we're not doing anything with these pieces of clay. They're way below us. We are not ministering to them. That was part of the rebellion, too, is... That was one, that's angels, one of their duties is to minister to us. Don't want to do it. So you understand that's the stakes. That's how the game is played. And that's really what's going on when this idea of accusing people and things of that nature. Okay. <clears throat> Obviously a motivator to do things contrary to God. You can see this with Saul. You can see this with King David, right? When he, King David decided to number 
Israel, remember that? And he was not supposed to do that. David almost died because of that, because he was influenced by Satan to number his army and the people of Jerusalem and things of that nature. So he was almost, he was almost killed, and the Lord stopped that. But you can see back then that there are, they, they become motivators for doing evil things in human beings. So that's Satan's work in the Old Testament. Let's move on to the next one. Any questions before? Oh, my thing froze. Let's go to them. There we go. Uh, let's look at Satan's work in relationship to God. Um, the first thing is opposition to the person of God and his righteousness, and then opposition to God's program by means of instituting his own counterfeit program. Okay, so the first one, opposition to the person of God and his righteousness. So what, what you see in Genesis 3, uh, 1 through 5 is the temptation of Adam and Eve, or particularly Eve. And right there, you, what you see is a personal hatred of Satan towards God in the fact that he first starts off with a, a doubting of God's word, a denial of God's word, and a disobeying of God's word, as you can see how he takes Eve through the steps. Now, what you have to understand is his whole program is to create an oppositional or counterfeit program to God. That's the whole point. It's just not simply to mess up God's program or try to at least to do that. It is to create a counterfeit opposition to it, to create an opposite kingdom, create an opposite morality, opposite values. Everything's opposite, everything. And so we see that in Genesis 3. 1 John talks about an opposition to his righteousness. So now what is an opposition to his righteousness? Well, righteousness as you now know, uh, forensically, it has to be given to you from God himself. Messiah had to keep the law in order to forensically give you that righteousness. That's why it's required to him to die on, on the cross in order to get that, give that to you. So the cross is not only the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin, but the atonement and the death of the Messiah allows you to do an interchange. That's why you have to focus on the cross, both aspects, blood and death. Blood forgives your sins. The death creates an exchange. Your unrighteousness, and you in exchange get his righteousness in the death of the Messiah, okay? That's the difference between a blood sacrifice and a whole burnt offering. That's, that's the difference. Blood sacrifices for the remission of sin a whole burnt offering is for the exchange. Okay, so he does that for us. So then we get a foreign righteousness that we don't have in, our, in and of ourselves, okay? So in the opposition to that type of righteousness, God, uh, sorry, Satan opposes it by what type of righteousness? What does he come up with for righteousness? Works. So his counterfeit system, his opposition to forensic righteousness is works-based righteousness. That's how he, he fools everybody on this planet to work for their righteousness. And he fooled the Jews, didn't he? Because by the time Jesus gets on the scene, the religious leaders, Pharisees, are all about a works-righteous system, the law. Okay? 
and Gentiles have their own ways of righteousness, but it's virtually the same. You get righteousness from good works. Okay, so they, Satan's system opposes that. So this is why when you clearly define the gospel for somebody, they will either do one of two extremes with you and not believing it. They will say, first of all, um, that's too easy. And what are they saying? They're saying is, well, you mean I don't have to do anything, that I can just live the way I want to live? Is that what we're saying? No. We're saying your righteousness is like filthy rags in front of the Lord. It will get you nowhere with him. You have to be 100% perfect. And they don't, want to, they don't want to go there because it will damage their pride. They want to maintain in them a sense that they're good enough. That's the problem. Humans want this sense that I'm good enough because now you're, they're finally being told in their life, you're not good enough and you're going to hell. That causes the reaction. Now, some people accept it. Some people don't. And prideful people don't like to hear that. And that's why it makes them very difficult, especially those with affluence. Affluence creates more of that. And how, why, why do I say that? What did Jesus say about rich men entering the kingdom? It's harder, isn't it? It's not impossible, but it's harder. Because the, the camel going through the eye of a needle, the camel has to pa- unpack that bag to get through that eye of the needle in the door. The eye of a needle is a little door in a bigger door. And so when they closed the gates in Jerusalem, you would have an eye of a needle, and in order to get through that eye, you would have to unpack the camel and then get the camel through by itself. But it, you, you couldn't have the bags on it because it wouldn't fit. So the idea is the rich person has to drop their bags, so to speak. They have to drop their, their security of wealth. And like the rich man, right? The rich man that came to the Lord, the young rich ruler, he had to just give up your wealth. And that, for him, that was the issue. Okay, in, in, in that sense, then, you have the opposition of righteousness <coughs> with pride. Then the other one then goes the other way, and uh, the religious one goes towards legalism. So you have works righteousness, which is like philanthropy, doing good things, the Oprah Winfrey style. And then you'll go, when they hear that, to religious legalism, and that's where cults form. Okay? So you have philanthropy on one side, and then you have the cults on the other. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Catholicism, you name it. That's where the Millerites, the Church of Christ, and everyone else are involved in that because it's a works-based righteousness. And that's what happens when the people don't accept forensic righteousness is they go to one of two extremes. Cults or good works as far as, uh, you know, philanthropy or something like that. Is there a question somewhere? Go ahead, Jeff. On the eye of the needle, another thing was is not only did they have to unload the camel, but also the camel would have to get down on his knees. That's so right. it, it was a point of humility. Yeah. 
and surrendering. And surrender going through there. So yeah, absolutely. And you can see how beautifully the Lord illustrated that. You know, you have to be humble and you have to unpack yourself. And then you can go. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult to put that camel in without him going down on his knees and unpacking himself, right? So it's a good illustration to understand that. But um, that's a good point, uh, Jeff. So that being the case then, he then comes and infiltrates false religions with works-based legalism, and then it goes here to the world and says, well, just be a good person, you know, donate to, uh, you know, uh, the Shriners or whatever it might be, and if your good work works out where you're bad, same thing. It's the same concept, but one is religious and one is philanthropy. That's where it goes. Where Catholicism comes from? Yeah, well, maybe, because, uh, you know, in Catholicism, you know, you'll be known by your works. It's actually, that's a phrase uh, sometimes that's located in the Bible. It says, well, Jesus knows your works. But Catholicism reinterprets that and says works are necessary for salvation. Well, that's another gospel. When Jesus says, I know your works, who is he speaking to? Those, that phrase comes out of Revelation 2 and 3 to the seven churches, right? Who's he speaking to? Believers. So when he, when he says, I know your works, he is talking to believers about rewards. I know your works. He, you don't talk to unbelievers like that. I know your work. You talk to believers like that because the, the, it's not an issue of, of salvation. It's an issue of how much he's going to reward you if you can overcome these certain things. So that's what I would say to that. Um, of course, Catholics get that all wrong. Okay, so then, so then the fight will be over how you establish righteousness. Now, let, let's now move to our arena, okay? Because this is how I want to show you how Satan gets believers. Okay, so if you're finding an understanding that, okay, my righteousness when I got saved comes from the Messiah, that's I'm positionally saved, I'm positionally righteousness, but I'm not practically righteousness, and that's what we're talking about, your, your sanctification, Okay. So then, where is the problem in sanctification come from? Where will Satan attack in that? If he's not going to talk to you about forensic uh, righteousness, what about your practical righteousness? How will he mess you up there if he can't get you on salvation? Well, how do you establish practical righteousness in sanctification? To be, when you see passages, be holy, be righteous. You see those commands to be like Christ, right? How do you do that? How, how are you conformed to the image of Christ? You must act out your position. You must act out your position. You work from your position and then you obey. If you want to know how to obey, then you must know your position. You must know who you are in Christ. And then you will actually walk, walk out in the light. You will, you will walk on the narrow path as you behave as your position tells you you are. You really have to believe what he says about you to live out the righteous life you're called to live. 
Okay? It's like putting on the uniform, right? I know that sounds backwards, but that's how it works. You have to operate from faith first and your position first, and then you obey to your position. Okay. If that's the case, then, what will Satan tempt you to do in establishing practical righteousness? To think you're more, that you're being more like Christ, to, ma- to make and fool you to think you're becoming more like Jesus. What would he do to mess that up? The first thing is to make sure you never know your position that you don't even understand your identity in the Messiah. Because if he can erase who you are in the Messiah and make you think you're something else, then you will establish a personal righteousness based on not obedience, but something else. You will do, according to Colossians 2, man-made works to establish you becoming more like Christ. Rather than living out your position, you will do what you think makes you more like Christ. Now, that's odd. Let me ask you this question. Does coming to church make you like Christ? Why not? I thought that's why we're coming here. Why doesn't, why doesn't you sitting here make you more like Christ? What prevents you from coming to becoming like Christ, even if you come to church every day? What would prevent you? Understand nature? Doubt? Lack of faith? Lack of knowledge? I really want you to think about it, because people are going to church every Sunday, and they're not becoming more like Christ. And they sit there, and they think they are, but they're really not. What's happening? They are hearers of the word, but not doers, James says. They sit there Sunday after Sunday, hear, but never internalize or metabolize the truth being given to them. And if you don't internalize and metabolize that truth, then you have no place to operate because you don't know any truth. How can you obey when you don't know the truth? See, the first thing you have to be is a hearer, and you must absorb it into your heart and then believe it. And if you believe it, then it will go out into your life and you will actually live it out. But if you don't hear, don't believe, then what are you left with? Well, you won't function right. And so I guarantee you what will happen is you will make up rules to make you think you're spiritual. So the person sitting in that chair that comes 365 days a year and never grows has actually created a system that's not real. They think they're spiritual, but they're not. They've repeated year one 30 times. And they just keep sitting there, and they keep sitting there, and they never grow. Other things. They will start doing legalistic practices. And it will always be couched under God-led. God led me to do, and have you ever talked to these people? God leads them to, like, how, how many teaspoons of sugar to put in their tea. God led me this. I, you know, he told me not to put two. He just told me to put one. Okay, wow. That's amazing. So what ends up happening is they start making rules. And this is what Colossians says. These things have the appearance of wisdom, but they will help you not. 
So what happens is the believer will become legalistic. That's what happens to them. And legalism, as Paul says, will not allow you to be sanctified. You will be stuck in a rut, but you think you're getting more spiritual because you keep adding more laws on top of Messiah's laws. How many laws under the Messiah? Close to 1,200, somewhere in that neighborhood. It's almost double the Mosaic law. It's almost 1,200 laws. How are you going to keep those laws? We can only keep them by faith. But the legalists will add to Messiah's laws to make them feel spiritual. Do not touch, do not eat, do it, whatever it might be. They'll start doing that. Okay, where am I at? Jeff, go for it. Most believers uh, don't grow because they don't desire the sincere milk of the word. Because if we desire the sincere milk of the word and we get in and start to study the little parts, we'll grow. Amen. So let's capitalize on what Jeff, Jeff just said. How come people don't have a spiritual hunger and they're believers? Why do they not have a desire to grow, to learn, to read the word, to apply it? Why, why are some believers, well, I can, I can leave it or take it, Brandon. You know, I'm, I got saved at BBS when I was 12. I know the whole routine. I've heard what you preach, Brandon. I, I've heard it all. I don't need to hear it anymore. I know it all. Why don't they have a hunger? Why is it? Why don't they have a hunger? Because this will help you in understanding if sometimes you grow cold, what, what's going on inside of you? What's happening? True, that's true. So they know that. that I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go there because I know I got to change. So they're kind of re- re- reticent to get involved. Obviously, yeah, I'm not living my life right. But what? Let's just say this guy is Joe Blow, Christian, good old boy, doesn't do any wrong. He really would rather not come to church, rather not read, would rather play, you know, uh, on his phone when he's here, and and just. It's good for my kids, good for my wife. She needs it, but, you know, I'm good. I'm good. Even if they're, like, moral, okay? Even if they're moral, they're not in sin. Let's give that guy a scenario. They're not immoral. They're not living crazy. I'm a good guy. Yeah, I know the whole routine, man. I've been in church 40 years, Brandon. Come on. What can you tell me I don't know? What's his problem? Why does he lack... A desire to grow. He guessed it's part of his leaving his first love. It's part of that. You will left your first love. But why do they leave their first love? When they were passionate about it, wanting to know more, wanting to grow, because they refuse to see their spiritual needs. They don't see how bad they are they are even as an unbeliever, how desperate their situation is. They don't see it. They think they got saved, and then that's all they need to do. And that's all their churches have ever taught. You're saved, and that's all you need to do. No, that's just the first step. You need to grow, and you need to mature. And Paul expected you to be mature by year three. Year three. That's what he told the Corinth church. 
I'm not making that up. He told the corn church. I, he planted the church and came back three years ago. And he goes, you guys are still a bunch of babies. I expect you to be mature. But now we have to go back and restart this whole thing again because you're babies. Right? He said that. I'm paraphrasing. But in essence, what are you saying? Okay, so then what happens is the believer, according to, uh, is it First Peter? Yes, I believe it's First Peter. I think it's First Peter. Let me double check. I always get confused between First Peter and Second Peter on the introduction. Let me see if I got the right text here. No, it's Second Peter. Yeah, Second Peter. Okay, so yeah, um, if I can see that. Yeah, there it is. There it is. It goes, okay, so I'll paraphrase because I can't read that. It says that what will happen then to the believer, if they don't mature, they lose basically the ability to understand their spiritual nakedness, their spiritual emptiness, wherever they're at. And what will happen is they actually go blind spiritually. You go blind to yourself. And so that blindness that happens to a believer, it can happen to unbelievers too, but it happens to a believer if they refuse to grow, then they go blind to themselves and they can't see their spiritual condition anymore. Yeah, they know they're saved, but they don't realize that, hey man, do you realize, man, you're carrying like 20 bags from your past and everybody knows them except you and everybody is having to deal with them except you spouse is having to deal with them. Your kids are having to deal with them. Your relatives, everybody's dealing with them except you because you're blind to your own issues. You ever run somebody like that? Everybody knows the elephant in the room about the person, but they don't know who they are. It's because they've become spiritually blind to their own situation. They, don't, they can't read themselves anymore. And, and when, you, when a, a person gets into that, they have no desire. They, they simply have no desire. Because look, if God really showed you and I how much we're lacking, even though we are saved, it would shock us. It would absolutely shock us and scare us to death that we're so far from where he wants us to be. It would scare us. But he's gentle and he nudges and he coaxes and he says, come on, I need you to fix this. I need you to fix this. Come on, let's go, let's go. Instead of just pulling the covers open saying, that's you, right? That would be scary. He doesn't do that. But if he, you allow him to coax you and say, man, you're right. I need to work on that and I need to work on that. And I'm messed up on here and I'm messed up on there. I'm messed up on there. And there's about a hundred things I need to fix. That's right, let's keep going, guy. Let's keep going. Let's just work on it. Come on. And what will happen is your desire to fix your needs, your spiritual poverty, when you really see it, will actually cause you to be ignited to know more of how to fix these things. Then you will want to read the Bible to know how to fix the things. Then you will want to know how you connect to God in order to fix the things. And that's, that's the idea of how you grow. But people that don't want to grow, they go blind, and they don't see their need, and they get stuck. That's America.
Yeah. Thank you, Pastor. Also, maybe you could uh, touch on uh, through this growth process and through these things um, as you're moving forward and developing a relationship and knowing who you are through Christ, um, the thing that I find most attractive and it's kind of selfish of me is the blessings that come with it. True. Because the biggest blessing that you're going to have is what Jesus called the abundant life, right? What is the abundant life? What is that? He says, I have come to give life and life more abundantly. Life and salvation, but he says it's more than that. It's abundant. What is that understanding of what he gives to any believer? It's an option, but it's there. What is that? Freedom. It's freedom. It's freedom to be who you were created to be. It goes all the way back to the garden. As Adam and Eve were in the garden before they fell, did they have clothes on? No. Why? They're free from what? They were naked and not ashamed. That meant they were truly free. They were truly, truly free because they were doing what they were created to be. That is what we call the abundant life. And so Messiah offers that and says, you can have that back. And then I'm going to actually give more in that because I'm not going to just use your old body. I'm going to give you a new body that you can function in better than Adam and Eve's. And one day you will truly be set free. That's the idea of abundant life is being set free. And so if you've ever experienced that, once you get a taste of what it's like to be set free, you want more. That's the idea. But you have to experience it first. You have to experience being set free from a sin that you struggled with all your life. And you're like, now I'm, I, I'm over it, man. I don't have a problem with that. That's freedom. You, okay, great. You can have freedom in that one. But then there's all these areas that you can be free in too. And that's what, that's, and he goes, all right, we're done with here. Let's go to this category, Brandon. And then let's go to this category. Because I want you free here. I want you free here. And I want you free here. Because I want you to experience life as I intended it to be for you. How would you like to have no fear? No fear of death. No fear of the outside world. No fear of what they could possibly do to you. I mean, the martyrs have had that. They were not afraid to look at their death right in the face. What's that like? It's called freedom. That's called freedom. Freedom not to, to, to not be afraid would change your whole direction in life. It would change the way you make decisions in life. A lot of times we're making decisions based in life based on fear. What's the economics going to be? What am I going to do in here? It's all based fear-based. But what if you had no fear and then you could make decisions? Wow, it would change everything as far as your decision-making. What if you could be set free from your relational baggage and then go back being 20 years old and date again? Imagine that. You catching my drift? 50% of the people say, I married the wrong guy. I married the wrong guy. I knew it, but I'm stuck now. 
what if we could put you back in time? How, what, what, what would be the way your life went? Maybe you'd marry the same person. I don't know. But you never were truly free. You've never experienced what it is to be truly free. You've had baggage. You have sin. You have all this junk that's put on you. And sometimes you don't even know why you make certain decisions, but it's coming from your sin nature, your, your past, and all that stuff. We haven't experienced what that's like. You will in a new body. And not only that, you have a new body, but when he gives you, sorry, when he takes away the sin nature, you will truly know what it is to be free at that point. Because that won't haunt you anymore. It won't cloud your vision. It won't make you make bad decisions anymore. Like snowboarding, right? Close to 50 years old. Don't go snowboarding like me and do a Peter Pan in the snow and think you saw heaven. Just telling you. You don't want to do that. That's a bad decision. That's me not understanding that the sin nature has racked my body, and I am uh, not 21 anymore. I notice I have to stretch out and all this other junk that I never used to do. I would just go out and play when I was a kid. Did you ever stretch when you were a kid? No, we just went out and played. If I don't stretch or do something, I'll pull a hamstring. I'll do all kinds of stuff. Isn't that sad? It's just sad how our bodies get. Anyway, the whole point is you'll be set free if you follow the Messiah on this path. And I'm telling you, once you have a taste of it, you just want more. It's amazing. 